feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. In his name, amen. Well, good morning again. We're in the middle of a series that we're calling Defeaters. This is the second week of that series where we're asking very difficult questions. It's called Defeaters because we're thinking about the five uh, most significant issues that skeptics and doubters and your non-Christian friends and family members have with the Christian faith. We're seeking to not avoid the hard questions, but see what the scriptures say about them. And today we deal with the problem of hell, the problem of hell. Last week we dealt with the problem of evil, and so we get a lot easier this week, the problem of hell. So a few years ago, um, I was spending time with a non-Christian family member, extended family member, and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with this person, and uh, we were nearing the end of our conversation, and uh, my family member stopped me and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Luke, so you're telling me that if I don't agree with you on all of this and with all other Christians that I'm going to hell forever? And as you might expect, that kind of dead-ended the conversation. It was like a hard stop right then and there. Because that's a question that you might have been asked if you're a Christian. It's a question that you might be asking if you're not a Christian. And it's a question that should make all of us pause. Because that kind of question immediately personalizes this topic, doesn't it? Hell is not just an abstract theological doctrine that some of us read about in books. The topic of hell is deeply personal and deeply, deeply discomforting. And here's the objection people have to it. People respond to the idea of hell by thinking and saying something like this. Um, I don't accept the idea of hell. In fact, I work and I live with very decent people. Some of them are atheists, some are Jewish, some are Muslim, some are Buddhist, etc., etc., etc. And I can't believe, I can't believe that they're going to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. What kind of a God would create and abide hell? I can't reconcile the idea of hell with the loving God. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you have a problem with hell. Uh, There's a reason. It's one of the great defeaters in our culture. And that's our topic this morning. 
Do you believe in hell? I mean, do you really believe in it? Not in the sense that you just mark it off on a theological questionnaire, but have you dealt personally with the reality of this subject? If you have, and I hope you have, then you know that it is extremely hard. It's extremely hard. The great Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford said this, no Christian should ever mention hell without tears in his eyes. Jonathan Edwards himself, who spoke and wrote a lot about hell, wrote, this doctrine is indeed awful and dreadful. And perhaps the greatest theologian in the evangelical world of the 20th century, the Anglican pastor J.I. Packer, wrote this, no Christian need hesitate to admit in his heart of hearts that he would wish hell were empty. Who can take pleasure in the thought of people being eternally lost? If you want to see folks damned, there's something very wrong with you. It's a hard subject. So why are we talking about it? You might be asking, and I might be asking myself. I'm the one up here having to preach about this, okay? Why are we talking about this? Uh, Well, Many of us who are Christians uh, tend to avoid this topic. We tend to ignore this topic. We tend to sidestep this topic. So why add it to this sermon series? Well, here's why. If we're committed to the way of Jesus, and if we're committed to the person of Jesus, we have to address this topic. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus himself spoke about hell a lot. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than any other biblical author and more than all of them combined. He spoke about hell in vivid and terrifying ways. You know, it's not a stretch to say that Jesus' teaching on hell is the basis for our entire theological doctrine of hell. So for Jesus, hell was a real terrible place. It was a place of anguish. Now listen to me, listen. If the most gracious man who ever lived spoke more about hell and more vividly about it than anyone else in the Bible, it must be important to him. If Jesus is your Lord, or if you want to seriously consider the teachings of Jesus and the claims of Christianity, you cannot avoid or reject this topic, however hard it may be to face us. Face it. It was important to Jesus. And if it's important to Jesus, it should be important to us. And if you're a skeptic about this issue, uh, we're glad you're here. Seriously, we're glad you're here. And uh, would love to talk to you more about this because there's no way I can address everything this morning. But one question is, why does Jesus speak about hell so often? You know, this topic, as I've said, is super personal and emotional. I recognize that. And I want to attempt to answer for you why Jesus spoke about hell as much as he did. And we're going to look at one of his most famous stories called parables um, to do that. And the way I want to approach this is to use this story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is a parable Jesus tells to the religious people of his day, to expose, to expose three misunderstandings that our culture and perhaps that you have about hell, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or not sure. Um, And this is worth doing. This is worth doing because these misunderstandings have to do with a topic that could not be more important. What happens to you when you die. So let's look at this parable together and uh, look at the three misunderstandings that it corrects for us. Misunderstanding number one is that hell is for bad people, really bad people, and heaven is for good people. That's the most common assumption, false assumption, that people make about hell. 
Um, a number of years ago, when I was a younger pastor, I had the opportunity to do a good bit of street evangelism with some people from a former church I served. And we were on a major university campus, and we used what's called evangelism explosion as a tool. Some of you might have been trained in EE. And evangelism explosion asks two questions of the people that you encounter. They call them two diagnostic questions, and they're actually a very helpful question. The first question is, what do you believe is going to happen to you when you die? Are you going to go to heaven or to hell? The second question is, if you were to die tonight and face the Lord and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What answer would you give? Now, I've spent a lot of time asking people those questions. The first question, if you die tonight, do you believe you'd go to heaven or hell? I have literally never in hundreds of encounters had someone tell me, I believe I'm going to hell. Zero times have I had someone tell me that. 100% of the responses are, I believe I'm going to heaven. The responses to the second question On what basis should God let you into heaven? Are almost always something like, well, I've been a pretty decent guy or a pretty decent gal. Or maybe I've been in church a lot or I was baptized when I was a kid. Or I even read my Bible or I give a lot of money away. Or there's a lot of people that are a lot worse than me. And I've never, ever heard someone say, I believe I'm going to hell. So I want to show you how this story along with the entire Bible, subverts that very popular cultural narrative about hell. That hell is for the really bad people and heaven is for good people. Now in this story, we read about two people, the rich man and this man named Lazarus, who is a poor beggar. And what you have to get in order to really get this story is that this rich man is not, listen, he is not depicted as some evil wretch. He's rich, no question. But rich in the Bible does not necessarily mean evil. And poor in the Bible does not necessarily mean righteous. In fact, he would have been a pillar of his community. He would have been a well-respected, decent human. He probably had buildings with his name on them. And it's not that this man abuses or mistreats Lazarus in this story. If you read through it again, you'll see that. All he does is ignore him. Just like most good, well-respected people ignore the homeless people sleeping under bridges all over our city right now. Further, Lazarus isn't depicted as being particularly good. He was poor. He was lame. He had to be laid at the gate. But he isn't in any way shown to be some beacon of holiness. In fact, the name Lazarus itself is significant. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, but for now, let me tell you that that name Lazarus doesn't mean good. It doesn't mean upright. Lazarus means whom God helps. Whom God helps. So Jesus, in telling this story, is not saying here, he's not saying the rich man was really, really evil and went to hell, and Lazarus was really, really good and went to heaven. That misses the point entirely. But that's the way most people in our society, and maybe that's the way you understand hell and heaven. Hell is for the bad. In fact, hell is for the really bad. It's for the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots and the rapists and the murderers and the pedophiles of the world. It's not for me. Why not? Because I'm fairly decent. I'm not nearly as bad as a lot of others. You know what? I've got to be in the top 50% and probably probably I'm in the top 10%. I mean, I'm here this morning. I could be having brunch. It's a beautiful day outside, but I came to church. I've got to be in the top 10% of all human beings. Why do people think that way? (laughs) Why is this such a dominant framework in our culture? 
Why do we assume that hell is for the really bad and heaven is for the pretty good? Well, we assume it because the default universal religion of humanity, all of our default operating systems is this. We develop a good record and present it to God. And God rewards those who are good enough and punishes those who are bad. That's the bedrock of every single religion and worldview in the universe apart from Christianity. That is what we call here the way of religion. It's the way of religion. But the gospel, the way of Jesus, is that God develops a good record and presents it to you. He gives it to us. The truth is that the only perfect one is God. And the only standard to be in God's presence, to be in heaven, is perfect holiness. So because none of us can get there on our own, God accepts us only on the basis of what he has done by grace, by grace alone. So when someone says, why can't I just be a good person? That's to assume that being good is good enough. And here's the point. Grace says that even at our best, we fall far short of the glory of God. Our only hope is a one-way street. God coming to us all the way. And in fact, he has in Jesus Christ. So when someone says, well, what about good Buddhists? What about my good agnostic friend? How can they be condemned? My response is, well, you're excluding a lot of people. You say I'm exclusive. You're the one being exclusive. What about really bad people? What about those who have regrets? What about those who've made terrible choices? What about moral failures? What about me? What about people like me? Because that's me. Are you saying it's impossible for me? Do I have to atone for my life? Maybe that's why I'm up here preaching, to make self-atonement for my own moral failings. Listen, Jesus again and again focuses us And you have to get this if you want to get Jesus. He focuses us not on how good people can get to heaven, but on how bad, wicked, rebellious people can get there. Can I put it very plainly? Very, very plainly for you. Hell is not for bad people. Hell is not for bad people. There's only one type of person in hell. Only one. It's for those who refuse to accept the grace of God. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for beggars. Heaven is for those of us who are like Lazarus, spiritually limp and lame. Heaven is for people who know that no matter what you've done or how you've lived, you can be welcomed completely and immediately because of the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. The first misunderstanding is that God or that hell is for the really bad and that heaven is for the good. A second misunderstanding that people have about hell is that God sends people to hell against their will when they really wanted to go to heaven. God sends people to hell against their will when they really wanted to go to heaven. That's another misunderstanding, another thing people find very objectionable, and by the way, rightly so. Rightly so. If that were true, it would be objectionable. So people will say, maybe you're saying, God sends people to hell just because they didn't have the same narrow theological categories that Christians did. 
And this person loved God in his or her own way. This person worshipped God in the way that God made sense to them. This person wanted heaven. They wanted heaven. They strived for heaven. But because they weren't Christians, God consigned them to hell to suffer forever. And he did it against their will. Now, that view has a lot of false assumptions. And if you'll patiently listen, please, I'll do my best to explain it. And again, I'd love to talk to you about it more if you don't buy it. Do you know that? Uh, It's a misunderstanding. And I think the story shows us why. So these two men, they die, right? And the rich man goes to hell, we read, and he's in torment, while Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, which is an Old Testament Jewish way of talking about heaven. And we have this dialogue between Abraham and the rich man, beginning in verse 24. Now think about this with me. Okay, you got to get this. Think about this. Imagine that you're this rich man. And imagine that this misunderstanding is not a misunderstanding, but that it's true. Imagine that you have been consigned to hell against your will and that you desperately wanted to be in heaven. And imagine that like this rich man, you have the opportunity to make a request of God. What is the first thing you're going to ask him? Anybody? Get me out of here. That seems like a reasonable question, right? Can I please leave this place? I really want to be in heaven. Why am I here? Please, God. What do we see? The assumption is that if he's there against his will, he would do anything to get out. That's what we would expect. But what does the rich man say? He never asks to be released. Did you notice that? What does he ask? Verse 24. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. And then verse 28. Send Lazarus to my brothers so that he may warn them. So what's going on here? What's going on? Well, here's what's happening. You see that the eternal state of these two men is an extension in some ways of their lives on earth. And at the same time, it's a reversal. It's a reversal in other ways of their lives on earth. Now, this is a parable. So we can't press every single detail. But it's worth noting that this is the only time in all of Jesus' parables. The only time in all of Jesus' parables where a character is named. The only time where a character is given a name is Lazarus, which, as we saw earlier, means whom God helps. And notice, the rich man is not named. He's merely known as rich man. It's as if Jesus is trying to tell us that this man is defined by something other than his personal name. This man is defined by his wealth. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that this rich man spent his life building his identity around his wealth. It might be money. It might be something else. It's whatever separates him from other people. He's simply the rich man. Lazarus, on the other hand, is in terrible shape. You read there, he's covered in sores that the dogs licked. And by the way, these dogs are not domesticated animals. They're not your poodles that sleep with you on your bed. These are wild street dogs licking this man's sores. And he was crippled, but his name is Lazarus. He trusted God's grace. Here's the thing. In this story, you and I, we see a rich man and a poor man. But God sees a very rich poor man and a very poor rich man. Now, here's the key. Here's the key. In hell, the rich man has not had a change of heart. In fact, he seems totally mystified as to what's happened to him. It's as if he can't believe it. 
Notice the way he treats Lazarus. I mean, he still thinks Lazarus is his servant. And he treats him the way rich people tend to treat poor cripples laying by their doorstep. And this exposes the misunderstanding. Those who object to hell, those who object to hell tend to think that God gives us one life, and if you don't make the right choice by the end of your life, he will cast you into hell where your soul will be forever, and it's too late. The assumption is that anyone in hell is there against their will. The assumption is that anyone in hell is there against their will. John Milton, Paradise Lost, gets a lot of things wrong about heaven and hell, but he gets this right. Listen to what he writes. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in these words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Hell is not for atheists. Everyone in hell believes in God. Hell is for those who refuse to accept the grace of God. The choice between heaven and hell is not Jesus or the devil. If that were the choice, then almost no one's going to pick the devil. I mean, this dude's got a pitchfork, he's red, horns, bad. We want meek, mild Jesus. That's not the choice. The choice is Jesus or you. The choice is Jesus or you. And even the objection, I could never believe in a God like that, reveals the problem. When you say I could never believe in a God like that, you're saying I will only accept a God that can meet me on my own terms and a God that is subject to your own ideas is no God at all. Hell is one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory extended into eternity. Hell is one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory extended into eternity. Hell is God giving you exactly what you want, a life without him in it. The best depiction of this, surprise, surprise, is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, says that hell is the ultimate monument to human freedom. Hell is the ultimate monument to human freedom. And in this book, he uh, allegorically paints this picture uh, of a bus ride from hell to heaven. And in this bus, anyone is free to get on the bus on the way to heaven at any time. And anyone is free to stay in heaven once you arrive. But the odd thing about the story is that no one chooses to stay. Listen to what Lewis says. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find, and to those who knock, the door will be opened. Lewis is echoing the words of Jesus. He's saying that God doesn't send anyone to hell against their will. The doors to hell are locked, but they're locked from the inside, not the outside. Listen to Lewis again. There is always something that those in hell insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. That's why the Bible uses these images of fire and darkness to depict hell in the Bible. Almost every Bible commentator and scholar agrees that those are images. They're metaphors. They're not to be taken literally. But what they 
are images of is something far worse. Fire disintegrates, right? Fire disintegrates, and darkness is an image in the Bible again and again of isolation and loneliness. Hell is the disintegration forever of a life apart from God, a life that gets what it wants, God out of his or her life. Hell is loneliness and isolation trajected on into eternity, life away from God. Here's the truth. All of us sitting in here were made to live in God's presence. And all good things that we enjoy in this life and the perfect life that we will enjoy through faith in the next world all come from being in God's presence. And so hell is to be forever separate from that which we were made for. Because we chose to build our lives on something else. Hell is God giving us over to what we want most. It's when he says to us, your will be done. Theodore Dostoevsky says, hell is the desire to love and the inability to do so. Hell is God giving us over to our own desires to rule our own lives. And when he lets us rule our own lives on our own forever... We find ourselves separated from him in fire and darkness, the disintegrating loneliness of an eternity spent away from God. God doesn't send people to hell against their will. God sends people to hell because it's exactly what they most want. Last misunderstanding. Hell is proof that God cannot be loving. Hell is proof that God cannot be loving. That's a final misunderstanding. It proves that God doesn't love us. How could a loving God ever send people to hell? Now, there's so much to say here. I don't have time to get into it. I just want to make two brief comments about this misunderstanding, and then we're done, okay? So first, allow me to put this really starkly. Um, Rather than proving that God cannot be loving, hell actually demonstrates the depth of God's love. Hell actually demonstrates the depth of God's love. Now, how can I possibly say that and be sane? How can I possibly say that and not have screws loose? I'm sure I do have some screws loose, but it's not because I just said that for other reasons. Um, I can say that because God has gone through hell. God has gone through hell himself to save us. God the Father loves his son. He's always loved him with a love that none of us will ever know except only through connecting to the son. And yet, on the cross, he parted from his son And it's not like he just said goodbye to his son, like when you drop your kid off from college and say, bye, see you at spring break. No, he departed from his son in the sense that he poured out on his son the full force of his wrath for sin. He poured hell on Jesus. Our sin is no small thing before God. All the judgment of a justly angry God at all that is wrong with this world was emptied onto Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I don't want to drink this cup because the cup recognizes what only Jesus can take on himself, the full force of God's righteous and just anger against a world gone wrong. But Jesus drinks it because Jesus did not just come to bring judgment. Jesus came to bear judgment. He came to bear judgment. Jesus took our hell on himself If that's true, if you can get that worked into your heart through the Holy Spirit's work, how can we then say that God is not loving? Most famous verse in the Bible, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Hell is a measure of what God was willing to endure to save you for himself. Second, second, it's easy to miss why Jesus actually told this story. The last few verses, I think, are the key. His audience in this story, his audience in this story are those who are in danger of missing the free grace of God. The rich man in the story asks if Lazarus can go warn his five brothers. And Abraham, representing God, says, no, they have the word of God. They have the prophets. And the rich man says, well, they haven't heard it. But maybe if Lazarus comes back from the dead, then they'll get it. And then the story ends by Abraham saying, if they don't hear the word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, that's highly ironic based on what we know happens to Jesus, right? So what's the point? What's this mean? Jesus is telling the story to us. The hinge of this story is that you see that you are one of these five brothers. You are one of the brothers. In the parable, the brothers don't hear, but you are hearing. You're hearing it right now. You're hearing the word. You're hearing from Jesus Christ himself. He is speaking to you through this story. Some of you are walking through your life, perhaps unconcerned, and Jesus is speaking to you. And he is saying, now, this morning, it's not too late. You're hearing from the Savior and the King now. No one else needs to be sent. You don't need any more evidence. You don't need any more proofs. You don't need any more argumentation. You need what you're hearing now. The Word. You have Him. He's available to you now. The crucified and risen Jesus speaks through His Spirit, working in the Word. Jesus spoke so often about hell because He wants your attention. He wants your attention. He is the one who will save you. Jesus speaks so vividly and really in such blood-curdling ways because he's warning you. He's warning you to listen. This is real, he's saying. He wants your attention because unless you have faith in Jesus, you remain under the judgment of God. We might have all kinds of objections. We might not understand it all. We might disagree. But you are hearing right now the one answer for hell. And that is Jesus freely will free you from it forever. Jesus freely will rescue from it you from it forever. Jesus has already done all that is necessary for you to escape from hell. Don't be. Don't be like the rich man. Don't build your life on something other than him. Don't think that I can just ignore this now and I'll deal with it later. Don't think I don't have enough information. God hasn't been fair to me. Don't think this is for people that are serious about religion. I'm not there yet. This story is Jesus asking you to see the reality of your world. The reality of your world is that you are a rebel, deserving God's displeasure, but that God is love and has sent his son to bear all your judgment, to take away all your sin, and he freely offers you forgiveness. Now, all you have to do is trust and believe that that is true. If you're connected to Christ, this world is the closest to hell you're ever going to get.
But if you're not connected to Christ, this world is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. What are you going to choose? The Spirit speaks now and asks you to come to Christ in faith. He has died. You can be forgiven. He's been raised from the dead. You can have life. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You have to fall into the loving arms of Jesus. And that's enough. Let's pray.